0: Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see. Open our ears that we might hear. Open our mind and our heart that we might understand, so that we will turn to you and live. As I say often, not every Sunday, but as I say often, I'm a beginner coming to you as a beginner. I'm going to assume you are too, and so let's begin together. Let's begin with prayer. Father, Son, and Spirit, would you help us? For we cannot help ourselves. Over the next few minutes and throughout the remainder of our worship, would you help us to see you more clearly and to love you just a little more deeply, to know you a little more fully, and to follow you a little more closely. Come, Holy Spirit, may only truth be spoken and may only truth be received. We pray this, Jesus, in your name, our friend, our king, our teacher, our savior. Amen. Amen. Well, no doubt if I were to go around the room, every single one of us has a story of unwelcome. Every single one of us has at some point in our lives maybe it was today, maybe it was this week, this year, we have experienced a sense of being unwelcome. And each of us, I don't think it's just me, but each of us not only carry with us an experience of feeling unwelcomed, but we carry with us an experience of being the one who is unwelcoming. We've experienced hospitality and we have been The ones who have experienced inhospitality, and we have extended hospitality, and we have been ones who have extended a lack of hospitality. We all carry those stories. And one of the things that I am continually struck by with Jesus in the Gospels, if you keep company with him, one of the things that becomes very clear very quickly is that Jesus seems to be most at home with those who have been unwelcomed. It just seems to be who is drawn to Jesus and who Jesus himself is drawn to. It doesn't mean that Jesus was unloving toward those who were the ones unwelcoming. But Jesus seems to be throughout the Gospels most at home with those who have been unwelcomed. I mean, you just could almost flip through the Gospels and put your finger down. And on that page somewhere, you find a picture of someone who had been pushed to the margins, who was unwelcomed by the vast majority of people in their lives, finding with Jesus something. There was something there. And that's one of the central points of the parable that Jesus tells in this reading. The tax collectors and the prostitutes People who were on the margins of their community, who some of Jesus' own friends would, would go on to push toward the outside. And to be clear, these were women and these were men who Jesus is very honest about that they are not living in a way that was anything but less than human. But they have heard Jesus's welcome, and so they come. Jesus welcomes, there's something about Jesus that welcomed those who were pushed toward the outside. And one of the things that is so challenging to me about Jesus and also such good news is that Jesus is extending a word of welcome, not only to those who have been pushed on the margins and have been unwelcomed, but also to those who have done the unwelcoming. There isn't anyone that isn't welcome to the table. Behind all of Matthew is the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 4 through 6 is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, what leads up to his teaching and the, uh, the substance of his teaching and what leads after. And one of the things as we read any other passage in Matthew, the assumption has to be that that is in the background because that's one of the things that Matthew intends. And at the heart of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' central teaching is the radical availability of God's kingdom, God's life, God's power, and God's presence, and all that that brings with it is available to everyone. The Beatitudes is Jesus looking out upon a crowd in which he ministered to in Matthew 4, and he isn't making up those who mourn. He is looking at people who he has sat with, and and he knows that they are in the throes of grief. He's looking at individuals who have fought to be peacemakers within their own family and have been marginalized and kicked out. And so when Jesus looks in the crowd and says, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the peacemakers, he's looking into the faces and the eyes of those, who, of those people whose stories he knows, some of which who have experienced healing and some who are still waiting And there are also those in the crowd, like the the religious leaders in today's reading, who will go on to ask questions of Jesus. The kingdom is available to everyone. Both those who are unwelcomed and to those who have deemed themselves gatekeepers of who is. And the reality is, is that each of us probably have different areas in our lives where we have sort of baptized ourselves as gatekeepers. Whether we ever express it out loud, or we have just learned that it is best to sort of cape the gatekeeping in here, never say it out loud, but just embody it silently. We all carry with us stories of unwelcome. And so here's how I've been sitting with these readings all week out of Ezekiel and Philippians and Psalm. And of course, Matthew is, I think, and I would argue there is a conversation going on between two groups of people who are asking radically different questions. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus is teaching in the temple. We are coming into Matthew after his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It's a significant turning point in his own ministry. And as he's beginning to teach in the temple... The religious leaders approach him and they come to him with a question, who gave you this authority? And what they mean by that is within the first century, anytime there was a teacher or rabbi of the law, there is a process through which you had to go before hands were laid on you and it was believed that you were given authority from God in order to teach in a way that's effective. And Jesus had never had a laying on of hands that they had seen. There was an authority that Jesus carried himself with. And to be clear, oftentimes we give the scribes and the Pharisees a really hard time. This is their job to ask this question. The Old Testament is full of times when God goes, you needed to ask the question. You're allowing people to teach things about me that is not true, to run rampant throughout the people. And so to give them a little bit of a break, they are asking the question they're supposed to ask. The problem is that they've skipped a number of questions that God has entrusted to them as the religious leaders of their day to ask. And so they come to Jesus going, on whose authority? Where is this authority coming from? Because what they're seeing is they're seeing that what Jesus teaches and when Jesus does things, something happens. Reality is shifting around him. And so even as ones who have the job to come and ask, But they're not asking, as I said, the questions that come before. So they come asking, who gives you this authority? And here's what question I would argue Jesus is asking. They're asking the question of, who gave you this authority? Jesus is asking the question, can these bones live? That's the question that is at the heart of Ezekiel from which our Old Testament reading comes today. Many of you are probably familiar with uh, what is one of my favorite scenes in all of the prophets, Ezekiel 37, where Ezekiel's looking over the valley of dry bones, and God is standing with the prophet, and God turns to the prophet and goes, can these bones live? And of course, the prophet goes, I mean, you tell me, if you want them to live, you can make them live. And then God invites the prophet with him to speak life over and into these bones. And these bones move from just skeletons on the ground to full living beings that are then breathed, the very life of God into them. And the question at the heart of all of Ezekiel, in fact, in many of the prophets is, can these bones live? Because anytime a prophet comes throughout the stories of scripture, the prophet comes usually when two things are happening. One is when there is rampant injustice in the lives of God's people. And secondly, when there is rampant idolatry. Whenever there was a moment where just rampant injustice and idolatry ruled the day, God would send a prophet. Even in today's Ezekiel reading, we come in the middle of uh, a little bit of an argument between the people of God and the prophet of God. The people of God, I think unfair, the word unfair shows up eight times in the reading. And the people are going, God is unfair. Why is God unfair? And Ezekiel, just as prophets do, doesn't address the question by addressing the question. Ezekiel doesn't address the fairness or the unfairness of God. What Ezekiel tells the people is what's needed in this moment is repentance and renewal. What's needed in this moment is for us as the people to rethink our strategy for living. And what we need is the breath of God in us. And every prophet that comes, whether it's Elijah Isaiah, Ezekiel, or John the Baptist. Every prophet comes, and hidden in their words, and oftentimes it is hidden, because if you ever want to take, you know, just a walk down crazy lane, just spend time with some of the prophets. But hidden in all of their poetic imagery, the apocalyptic literature is a promise. And it's this, that God will do what we cannot, and that one will come, And the one who comes will bring with them a new reality. The religious leaders are saying, who gave you this authority? Who's in charge here? And Jesus is asking the question, since he arrived, can these bones live? Do you want these bones to live? And one of the things I love about Jesus is he doesn't hide his answer. What do you think his answer is? Can these bones live? Yes. Yes. If you want them to, these bones can live. I am the one. I'm the one who was promised. And the new reality that the prophet spoke of is here. That's why Matthew, in Matthew chapter four, Jesus comes out of the wilderness. In Mark chapter one, Jesus comes out of the wilderness. And the first thing he says is rethink all of life for the kingdom of God is here the ones that the prophets have promised looked for expected is here and it was as polarizing then as it is now every one of the prophets asked the questions can these bones live the psalmist put it differently the psalmist put it in the form of a question but the question they ask is how long o oh lord creation's groaning is that question. Can these bones live? How long, O oh Lord? Jesus comes and Jesus asks us, do you want these bones to live? Friends, do you want these bones to live? And whatever those bones are, for some, it, if you're anything, again, like me, there are parts of my life, there are parts of my story, there are relationships, uh, there are, just name it, that feel like the valley of dry bones. And then there are other parts of my life, there are other relationships, there are other parts of my story that feel like they were bones, yes, once, but life has been breathed in. In the story in Ezekiel chapter 37, it's an all or nothing. There is a valley of bones and then they become people and there are no bones left over. But the reality of our stories, the reality of our lives, the reality of our bodies, Is that it is much more of a mixed crowd. There are fully formed, healed parts of us standing next to and standing over parts of us that are brittle, dusty, Indiana Jones style bones. And Jesus asked, Do you want these bones to live? It's interesting to me that the leaders won't answer the question Jesus gives to them. They ask Jesus that question, Who gives you this authority? And again, Jesus is asking a whole different set of questions. And he looks at them and he goes, Hey, okay, I will give you the answer. He doesn't tell them no, he says, I'll give you the answer, but first, will you answer me a question? And as you heard, it's not that they can't answer the question, it's that they won't. They won't. Most often Jesus' questions throughout all of the Gospels, all of Jesus' questions even to us now, are meant to do multiple things, but I think one of the things that Jesus' questions are always inviting us into is into reality. Jesus is inviting the religious leaders into reality, into a moment of honesty, a moment to name where it is that they are. Because the reason why they won't answer the question is because they're afraid. They're afraid of being proven wrong. They're afraid, I don't know how many of you, like being publicly made to look incompetent. Being publicly made, it's, it's one of the reasons why things like politics drive me crazy. Just for once, and this is not a partisan statement because everybody does it. Just once, I want someone behind a podium to go, you know what, I don't know. God, wouldn't, that be, wouldn't that be refreshing? I see it on your faces. Wouldn't that be refreshing for someone just to go, I don't know. It's a great question. I don't know. Instead of a flip of a binder, well, actually, what about, --uh? everybody does it. That's not a partisan statement. Everybody does it. Just for once to go, yeah, I don't, I don't know. The leaders won't answer the question. They've in fact lost the question, will these bones live? They're not concerned with whether or not the bones will live. They're concerned with their own image. They're concerned with their own power, with their own authority, They won't answer the question, but Jesus will. Will these bones live, to which Jesus' answer is yes. In fact, that is the declaration of the resurrection. That yes, these bones can live. But in that, since all of us are mixed fields, this is the tension of healing. Healing. This Sunday, we'll pray for healing and wholeness. And one of the tensions of healing, and it's part of my call and part of my vocation, is as one who is with people, with some of you in your darkest moments, to pray for healing, to anoint you with oil. And the tension is that sometimes resurrection is immediate instantaneous. I've seen it happen too many times to think of it as a coincidence. Sometimes resurrection and healing is immediate, and sometimes it is complex and it is slow. Think of Jesus's story of healing the blind man who, on his first go, isn't healed. Jesus goes, can you see? And he's like, I see people like shadows, like great trees. Do you remember this story? And then Jesus has to go to him again and is again healed. But then there's also stories of sudden healings. As much as there is stories of slow. I think of Peter, who is just brash and a gatekeeper, who experiences the radical hospitality of Jesus is given authority and goes right back to gatekeeping. Has to be woken up by an outsider. Literally woken up by the knocking of an outsider. And Cornelius to welcome him back in. We get a very different Peter in Peter's letters than we do Peter in the Gospels or in Acts. Peter took a long time to heal. And that is the tension, is it not? That's why over the years I have learned so much from the churches who are on the margin. For me, growing up in Atlanta, um, which is an incredibly diverse city, but the churches that were not like ours that we were in closest proximity to were the black churches. And I have over the years learned and returned so often to what I have learned from them. that has helped me to navigate and to sit with, not even to resolve the tension in this, but just to hold it, to learn how to faithfully hold both. Because I think it's the people who have been on the margins and who have found God as most comfortable there have a lot to teach us. Two of the biggest lessons I continue to learn and I'm continuing to learn is that for them, Jesus' suffering is theirs and their suffering is Jesus's. They don't see a division between the two. For them, the cross is a symbol of God's solidarity with them as the suffering God. But for them, it's also a symbol of power, which is Amazing because it is a symbol that has been used against them by people who wield it thinking that they're wielding it in a way that has power. But as I described to Chris beforehand, it's sort of like they're wielding it like a plastic police badge. And for them, it is an actual symbol of power, of true power, of hope, joy, love, and peace not the kind of power that's been wielded against them. Jesus' suffering is theirs, and their suffering is Jesus's. But also Jesus' prayers are theirs, and their prayers are his. Many of you, many of them, are living a psalm. Not just in the circumstances in which you're living, feel very psalm-like. But in the willingness, it's one of the things, it's one, it's one of the reasons why I love the spirituals that have come out of their tradition. It's one of the reasons why I love the blues, which those gave birth to. Because they not only name, this is the beauty of all the Psalms, they name the reality of what life is, and they have the guts to demand resurrection while not trying to manipulate and make resurrection on their own. of the God who came and who declared through God's own resurrection that these bones can live. They look to that God and say, okay, you're the God of resurrection, let's go. Can these bones live? And they demand it with their whole selves. can these bones live? Yes. 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 Because if the answer is no, There is no hope. None. It robs us of our inability to name injustice. And it robs us of the inability, of the ability to get up to put one foot in front of the other. Can these bones live? Every Sunday we come. We come to a table that is full of good bread and good wine. But we come not to remember like a cognitive exercise. If you want to hear the resurrected Christ, one of the places we do that is in our liturgy, in our words, in our songs, our prayers. And if you want to experience the resurrected Christ, to taste to feel, to smell, to see, we come to this table. Some weeks I come in and I don't know if the bones can live, but I pray and I sing and I listen and I eat. And some weeks I come in with full confidence that these bones can live and I pray and I listen and I sing and I eat. It is the gift of God for the people of God to taste and see that these bones can live. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.